If you turn to Genesis chapter 2, we finally turn the corner. And now all the drama begins. (laughs) Because we find man. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things before we dig in. Also, I want to give you, I don't know if you've been following the hurricane, but it actually has decreased in power and it hasn't really done a whole bunch of the destruction that they thought. So I do believe the Lord answered our prayer from this morning. Amen. Hallelujah. Thus far, not a single death, at least in, in uh, that we know of. So the Lord has been gracious and kind and a lot of trees. So those who own nurseries are going to be in great stead following the following the hurricane's departure because there's going to be a bunch of trees thus far, but uh, the the massive destruction thus far at least uh, has not occurred. But as we turn our attention here to chapter 2, chapter 2 is one of those debated chapters that people often will say, see, there's a contradiction in Scripture, and I'm going to go through the whole uh, explanation as to why not only is that not true, but God is being very intentional uh, as the author sees things. You also have to remember that Adam was not there at the creation. Amen? So Adam wasn't there either. So we would expect something from God's perspective being passed along as an oral tradition to Adam and those things which Adam himself would then experience with God to have a slightly different flavor. And that is the case here as we get into chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Genesis. And so before we dig in, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless us as we study his word. Father, we have come again to this amazing book of beginnings, Lord, the book of Genesis. And as we begin chapter 2 here, we ask for your presence by your spirit to be the interpreter of scripture, to help us to understand. And God, as you intended to tell us what it was that you did uh, during that creation week, and then you now summarize it here in chapter 2. Uh, We pray that we would learn and grow and, and most importantly, learn to rest and trust in your word. What you say is true and all that you say is true. And so, Lord, if we can't trust these first chapters of this amazing book, uh, then it really gives us reason to not believe much of the rest of it. And so we do trust that this is truth and that you gave it, uh, Lord, eventually to Moses as he wrote it down spoke these things likely to Adam in the garden. Uh, And so, Lord, we we believe this is a firsthand account of creation from the Creator. So bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 2, the book of Genesis. And thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And so the Lord is now going to make a very assertive summary uh, of what he's basically been doing. And, and while, you know, you get into all kinds of scientific conundrums, you get into a bunch of theological problems if you make Scripture say more than it says, but you get into even worse problems if you deny the plain teaching of Scripture. And so while we look at the second chapter, it's very important that it is an assertive summary. God is looking back at what he's already done and adding some additional details and reminding us of some central truths. So as we look and and we see these things, keep it in that context because it's very clear that God is trying to remind us that we are to trust the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them, which would be the stars and the galaxies and everything else that's out there in the heavens, were finished. 
And on the seventh day, God ended his work. Now remember, there are two types of things that essentially we have seen. That God has bara, he has created from nothing certain components of the universe. He's created all space, time, matter, and energy. So he's created the basic elements that you could use to construct everything with. And then he has both made and formed those things into other things that are made out of the substances that he created. Very important to differentiate between those three words. Because God can create from nothing because he's outside of space and outside of time. So for him to make something and place it into our time domain is extremely easy for him. It'd be impossible for you and I, but for him, because he dwells outside of it, has all knowledge, all power, all constructive capability, he can create. And so he creates time, space, matter, and energy. And then what he does with that time, space, matter, and energy is in further form or make things. And so as we see this summary, he's giving us a clue as to why we cannot look at the world today, we cannot look at the universe today, and apply uniformitarian principles to it. Because God finished doing what he did during creation week. And so there were very special things that he did during that time that he has not ever repeated He created in this universe certain component parts. He created the laws of physics. He created all matter as we know it. He created the periodic table of the elements. He creates the basic forms of life, most of the kingdom and phylum. He he explains all of those things to us while he does not go into microscopic detail about the molecular structure of every animal. He does tell us that he's created all of the stars, all of the planets. He creates earth uniquely for man's inhabitation. He puts mankind on it, and he makes it a finished or a functioning world. And so extremely important that when we look at this world, we realize God did some things in times past that are not currently going on. Furthermore, there's going to be a global flood that's going to reshape the face of the entire planet. And as he does those two things, a special creation and a global flood, in essence, the evidence that we see today is what we would call tainted evidence. Because the evidence of what happened in the past no longer exists as it existed when he finished creation because it's been altered by the flood. And so... In that, with that in mind, and he rested on the seventh day, and God ended his work. The work, word work there is all of the things creating, making, and forming, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. So repeating, he's making sure that we, we understand I stopped doing what I was doing previously, I am no longer doing what I was doing previously. I rested from that very specific work of creation, and I am not doing that anymore. God's making sure that we get that principle, because it's super important. Because here's what happens if you're an evolutionary biologist, or you are purely an evolutionist from a humanist standpoint, a secular standpoint. You believe that all things have, from the beginning of the Big Bang, continued with certain principles, with certain decay rates, all kinds of things scientifically that have been going on. You believe that from the singularity to now, there have been uniform forces and principles at work, and we can still observe them. God says you can't still observe those things. 
And so we can either trust what God says and believe that he did something at the very beginning, and it has not ever been done since, and those forces that he put in play then, he did not and is not repeating today, or you can believe that those things have always gone on in very slow and extremely time-laden processes, and, and thus the universe comes about. Those are the two worldviews, basically, that we, we can look at, two reasons for origins, as it were. And then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. And when we see the word sanctified in the scripture, it's defined here, first usage, sanctified means to be set apart. It means to, to be made holy and placed any place that God has defined what it should be. God has defined, decided that for mankind there is to be a Sabbath rest. And we'll get into the details of that in a little bit. But God is, is if you're here today and you're a workaholic, um, God is telling you right now, you need to at least take every seven days a day of rest for two purposes. One is your physical body. We were not made to work seven days a week, and we were certainly not made to go long periods of time without worshiping the Lord. And so he sets apart a day that he calls a day of rest so that we will honor what God has done and so that our bodies will get the physical rest that we actually need. Well-proven medical fact, by the way, that people who are successive workaholic mentality that go on for weeks on end eventually die from things like arterial sclerosis, all kinds of cardiac events. If you work too hard, too long, and you continue doing that over a long period of time, your body is incapable of sustaining that. Short periods of time, we can do anything. But God intended that we would take a day of rest in a week. And I want to draw your attention to something can anybody here tell me why in the world we have seven-day weeks? It's from the Bible. The entire world, there is no clock in the world that says you have to have a seven-day week. You, you could make a case for a year because it's the time that it takes our planet, Earth, to rotate around the sun, amen? You can make a case for a day because it's defined by day and night. But the only reason the entire world uses a seven-day week is because of the Bible. Most people don't know that. They're wandering around, well, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, why do you believe in weeks? <laughs> Just ask them. And where do you get that from? Because there's no reason to put seven of them together, except the Bible says so. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So he's clearly defining the practices and principles that he did during creation week. The things that were very specific to those six days of creation were very unique, and he rested from them. And this is the history of the heavens. This is the first time that the word toldath is used here. It's a Hebrew word. It means history or generations. So in essence, he's telling us this is the generation, the end of the generation that is the creation generation. In other words, he did something specific, and this is the end of it. This is the history of it. The history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in the day that the Lord God, now notice the shift. Before this, he is purely Elohim. He now is shifting to a personal master. Lord God means master God. It's Jehovah Elohim. 
So now somehow someone is in a relationship with the creator. So we know this is the point at which Adam is now beginning to tell the story. Because there is someone who is worshiping the one who made everything. He's now the Lord God. For in that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, he's making a slight differentiation between those things which needed to be tended and tilled. And so he's, he's reminding us that man always had a purpose. God created us purposefully, willfully, wants us to have meaning and purpose. Man was intended to be industrious, uh, not lazy, not sitting around waiting for things to happen, but to help those things along. And so those plants had not yet uh, been, in essence, domesticated and, and grown uh, in the presence of Adam. For, again, the Lord God, the, the very specific terminology here, and it's very, very, very important that you see the difference between him just being Elohim, God in three persons, and him being master and also Elohim, the Lord, master, God. Had not caused it to rain on the earth, for there was no man to till the ground. And so he's looking back previous to the time that Adam is created, and he's giving a very quick synopsis, and then the trouble's going to occur But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Little scientific insight into the substance of which we are made. Um, Basically, we're dirt, is what he's saying. The dust, and scientifically, that is pretty much what we are, and we'll get into that in a minute. And he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. Uh, he, bring, he brings now the, the Ruach Elohim, uh, the breath of God, into his, into his lungs. And man became a living being. And so here are these first seven verses of chapter 2, a summary. So four times God has finished his work, and then three times it's emphasized that it included all of his work in this Genesis account. In other words, God is at work doing something, but he then finishes it. So creation in that sense It's a stressing because of the vital importance of realizing that the present processes that we see in the cosmos are not the same processes that went on during creation week. Star systems, galaxies, whatever God did to to create the universe as we know it, those things were unique to the time of creation. And so from that point forward, in the galaxy, in the cosmos, out in the universe that we can now observe with things like the Hubble, Hubble Deep Field Telescope, what we see is what God did in the past, not what is still going on today. It's what he did in the past and now the information being pushed forward into our time. So God's telling us, be careful how you view the information. Be careful that you don't take a, a purely uniformitarian view to this because that's the folly of trying to look at origins with the evidence that we can only see today when God has told us with an eyewitness account because he was there and as he transmits this on, gives those words to Adam, Adam likely transmits all this information for generations to Moses and Moses then codifies it, puts it together, assembles it into what we have as the book of Genesis. And he said, this is what I did. 
And so you need to look at the world around you. You need to look at the universe around you through a correct lens, a correct understanding of what happened. Otherwise, you will take what you see now and believe what you see now has always been going on forever. And God clearly says that's not the case. The physical laws that are now active in our universe, without exception, are two basic processes, the two main laws of thermodynamics. They are the conservation of mass and energy. No mass can be created or destroyed. No energy can be created or destroyed. It's only transferred into different states. In other words, when you take friction, you can make heat. Amen? Everybody know that? You rub your hands together long enough, you can burn your own hands. So you can transmit the energy that's in the molecules that are in your, the surface of your skin. You can rub them up and you can get them nice and warm and you can turn what is stored in your skin into heat energy. But it doesn't disappear. That energy then goes into the molecules of the air and it transfers and that heat is forever perpetuated. It's just transferred into other forms. The same thing is true with all matter doesn't matter whether it's subatomic or whether it is molecular or whether it's a dirt clod. You can take a dirt clod. You cannot get rid of a dirt clod. It will forever exist as the atoms and as the electrons and the nuclei of all the various component parts of it. So the laws of thermodynamics clearly state in our day and time that nothing is actually being created. That's a law of physics. Nor is anything being destroyed. The second law is the law of entropy. The law of entropy says that any system, any molecule, any atom tends towards decay. That's the basic law. So you should see in the universe everything degrading, not getting better. So when you think about a universe that starts in an explosion, the two basic laws of thermodynamics say that nothing can get better. It should always degrade. The more time you give it, the less organized it should be. So God is reminding us, look, I stopped doing the things that I did at creation. So now the processes that you see in the universe, you can judge from that point on. And as far as the earth is concerned, that you can see those things from the flood on. And so those universal processes are still actively going on since God's creation period. Now what he does is he goes on and instead of creating and creating and making, God uses innovation. One of the ways that we know that that evolution is absolutely impossible in creating something from nothing is it requires innovation. What is innovation? If you and I decide to all get together and we're going to make a product, we're going to do what we call brainstorming, right? If you're at Disney, it's going to be Imagineering. We're all going to gather our ideas. We're going to gather concepts. We're going to gather theories. We're going to gather materials. We're going to gather all kinds of information, But that implies that there's someone who's actually the innovator. Amen? So in our world, for anything to be created now, there has to be the process of innovation. It's exactly what God did. He took what he had created, and then he made something with it. He formed it. That's him applying logos. That's him taking his information and saying, I'm going to do this with it. So that creating and making are the opposite of the basic laws of conservation and disintegration. 
You can take things that are already made and you can do all kinds of stuff with them, but you cannot make that matter disappear, nor can you make the energy disappear. And if you leave it alone, it will degrade. So God's word clearly sets forth a way for us to understand the world that we live in. All of this time that's gone on, the supposed billions of years, can never, hear me well, all of the billions of years, the currently 14, uh, nearly 14 billion, but 13.7, the actual number, that astrophysicists say the universe has existed, the 13.7 billion years since the Big Bang, all of it can never produce innovation, nor can it produce integration. That's taking innovation and doing something with it. So it cannot make and it cannot form. Time doesn't do that. Information does that. That has to come from the outside. God's saying, I stopped doing those things. I don't do it anymore. I did all of that during creation week. I first created from nothing, bara. And then I saw made things. And all of those things can do all kinds of stuff because all of the matter and all of the time and all of the energies in the world. And so they can transfer from one form to another. You can take things and make things out of what's already there. But I stopped making new stuff. And I stopped imparting knowledge into new species of animals and new species of plants. So all you can do is hybridize them, which is exactly what we see in our world. You can take and graft all kinds of plants together. We have, we have one of those peach, plum, pear. We, we've got this, four, this tree that's got four different fruits on it because somebody took the time to take a plum and an apricot and a peach, and I think I have two peaches on there, but they, they grafted them together. I didn't make that plant. I, I didn't create it. But I, the person that did integrate information into that system, took something that already existed and then grafted it into something else that already existed and then grafted another branch into something that already existed and then grafted a fourth branch into something that already existed. That took a lot of knowledge, a lot of information. It took time, but it was not a new creation. All four of those trees already existed. You can take a couple of breeds of cat. Don't know why you do this, but you could have, you know, we've got all kinds of cool-looking cats. I I actually like cats. Just saying. I really do. Just not that much. (laughs) No, I actually, the two that we have are kind of crazy, but but if you've ever looked at at the feline world, that's amazingly beautiful animals. But guess what? They're all cats. They're all felines. And no matter how long you leave dogs and cats together, you're not getting a cat dog. It isn't happening. Why? Because they are genetically sealed in the DNA that those two species cannot interbreed. It's an impossibility. I don't care if you leave them around for 100 billion years. You're still going to have dogs and you're going to have cats. You're not going to have cat dogs. And the same is true for every single kingdom and phylum in all of life because we've been trying within species no problem out of species you cannot do it and so 
during these, this creation week, these six days, we've seen only the basics of what God did. But those basics lead us to the understanding of the natural world that we live in. We've seen how long it took. We've seen the various creation events. We've seen divisions or kinds of things that were made. We've seen the basic order of development. We've seen the relationships of the various components that one was necessary so that the other could survive. All of the basic natural laws, in other words, the laws of physics, the basic laws of science, all created by God, and in fact, the incredible order that should be in the cosmos, and that is exactly what we see. So God's been very truthful in his summary here. And from that, he now says he's going to rest. God rested. The completion of that work, it's actually stressed in Hebrews 4. If you want to turn there, Hebrews 4. Uh, we'll look at the first four verses. And therefore, since the promise remains of entering into his rest... Let us fear, lest any of you should come up short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well to them. Remember, it was written first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. So it was written to the Hebrews, to whom this letter is addressed, and then to them, the Gentiles. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. Amen? For we... Who have believed do enter that rest, exactly as he said. God intends his kingdom to be a kingdom of rest. And that's what's coming for all of us. God has given us a little window into how he functions here. He's not made us to do what we're doing right now permanently. I'm looking forward, when I get to heaven, I'm snoozing for the first thousand years. I'm just going to rest. I'm going to kick back. You know, I may go fishing a little bit. I don't know. I can't kill any fish because I'm going to be a vegetarian when I get there. But there'll be trout bushes or something, I think. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He says, look, I rested from my works and I finished them. When I did it, I did it. And I'm not doing it anymore. And so he, he says what he did. I, I made the host of heaven Genesis 2.1 there refers, I believe, almost exclusively to the stars, the galaxy, the heavens themselves. Though it could also pertain to the angels and, and those created beings who are in the heavenlies. But it certainly is the host of heaven as we know it. And, and, and you know, people always ask, well, where do the angels live? I, I don't know. Ask them. You know, some, I always get these crazy questions. And, and when you try and answer it from Scripture, there is no answer. We're not told. We don't know. We don't, you know, God, doesn't, God has an address, by the way. It's heaven. There's not a number. It's not a street. It's not a planet. It doesn't have, you know, like we have here on earth, longitude and latitude. It's not a celestial orientation. It's heaven. It's actually the heaven of heavens. So it's that outer area of heaven, which we do not know. And, and so God is simply saying, look at my day of rest as I, as I now get to that place I am now not doing what I was doing before. I stopped doing that. So now you can look at the universe and, and, and say, okay, these are the things that we now see. But that's as far as you can take it. The next part of his creation is actually an even more important part of his creation because he is now going to set to work on creating a new creation in man. 
He's going to do the harder work, the work of redemption. John 5 says this, verse 16, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. The, the Jewish religious leadership, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, were looking at Jesus, and they were always on his case because Jesus was always doing something on the, the Sabbath as in Saturday. Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown, the Hebrew Sabbath. If you travel to Israel today, it's Shabbat. And when you go to Israel, be careful what elevators you get in on Friday afternoon after the sun goes down because they stop on every single floor because that is a way that you might do work, you know, pushing those buttons. That's hard stuff. So they take the legalistic route that it's after the sun goes down on Friday to after the sun goes down on Saturday, that is the day of rest. That's not what God's getting at. And in fact, we're going to look at that. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. He says, this, This whole Sabbath thing, you kind of missed the point. The point was not a legalistic rule. The point was worship God. And very clearly, let me be extremely distinct here. I have some friends that are Messianic Jews, and they keep the Sabbath primarily so that they can minister to other Jewish people who keep the Sabbath. So they also do church on Sabbath, on Shabbat. For that reason, pretty good reason. But we as New Testament believers should be worshiping God every single day. But the early church met on the first day of the week. They met on Sunday. So most of the church has taken up meeting on Sunday for that reason. So God says, make sure you take a Sabbath. Exodus 31, 17 says that on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. I love the fact that God took a break and was refreshed. Now, I don't know what that exactly means, and I've been asked that question. You know, does that mean like God was worn out from creation? I don't think so, because he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's all of those omni things. He's everywhere at once. He's not lacking in power to do anything. He has all the information he could need. He can create something from nothing. But I think it is an important thing that he was refreshed as he was resting. As he was taking a break from that. And I think what it is, was he was getting ready for what lies ahead. Very much like we see in the life of Jesus. We see a number of times in the Gospels where Jesus, as he's about ready to go do something spectacular takes the disciples and he goes to the other side of the lake, takes the disciples and he goes and sits underneath a tree and teaches them. He takes the disciples and goes and takes a little break. It should be a good warning for us to remind ourselves that that if God incarnate in human flesh occasionally needed a break, maybe it's an okay thing if we slow down a little bit occasionally. Amen? So it introduces the Sabbath to us. And this day of rest, or the, or the seventh day, was primarily for man's benefit. And, and I, think, I think it's important to keep it uh, in, in its context. 
Obviously, God is intending this as a human institution, but he does something very, very, very specific with the Jewish people. And if you want to turn there, Exodus 31, Exodus 31, verse 16, and it's speaking of the literal Sabbath. Now, this is where it's important to differentiate just a little bit. Because for the Jewish people, he gave them a literal Sabbath. That literal Sabbath is what today is called Shabbat. But he defines that. And therefore, verse 16 says, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, not a Sabbath, the Sabbath. We are to keep a Sabbath. In other words, a day of rest and a day of worship. The Jewish people were to keep the Sabbath day. To observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. That's why when someone comes to me and says, you're worshiping on the wrong day, I say, well, you got a problem with God then. Because he actually defined how this works. Verse 17, it is a sign between, a covenant is between two or more parties, amen? He's now going to define who those two parties are. It is a sign between me and the, oh my goodness, the children of Israel forever. Does that say the Gentile church? No, it does not. So what it says is the Sabbath, the actual Sabbath or Shabbat, is for the children of Israel. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he, was, he rested and was refreshed. So for us, we keep a Sabbath. It, it's not a day specifically. It is a day that is for a specific thing. And that specific thing is so that we can rest and be refreshed. And that specific refreshing is refreshing in the spirit. If you don't do anything else on your day of rest, worship the Lord. If you got two of them, praise God. If you got three of them, if you have a vacation, praise God. They're, they're for your good. They're for your benefit. They're for your blessing. And so God emphasizes not a Saturday, but simply a rest for us as Christians. And again, our weekly cycle as far as the church worshiping was, was always the first day of the week. And so, you know, that's why we have here, we have service pretty much every day of the week in the church. There's something going on. There, there's a Bible study being taught. There's a time of worship. There's a time of prayer. There's a time of praise that happens virtually every day of the week here at Coverage Chapel South Bay. So I stick with Paul's take on this. I esteem all days alike. I worship God on every last one of them. And at least once a week, I take a day of rest. Amen? That's how God intended it for us. It it is really a memorial of his creation week. He says, I'm going to rest. You need to rest. That's why when, when Jesus says things that point back to what God did during creation, we want to take note of it. You see, God also rested. When Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished, guess what the next day was? It was a day of rest. So as he began the work of redemption by giving his life a ransom for many, he finished that work. He said to Telestai, it is finished. And what did he do? He rested in the tomb for three days, and then he was raised up again to go out and and begin to do those final 40 days of ministry before he went back to heaven. So we even see it in the 
in the new covenant, if you will, during, that age of, during the age of grace that we currently live in. So I said there seems to be kind of a contradiction here, uh, though the second chapter of Genesis, in my view, is, is just uh, kind of some additional detail of the, of, the, of the sixth day of creation, especially the formation of man and woman. And we're going to get additional detail as, as we kind of cover this, the rest of it. But here in the, here in the second chapter, there's no contradiction here. And, and people always want, well, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like, you know, when you have hindsight, it's pretty good, isn't it? When you've been through a situation and then you retell that, you're fairly accurate in telling what happened in times past. Amen? And so that is exactly why we see the change here, and, and it gets more and more pronounced as we go through these next several chapters. But from the second half of verse 4 to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1, uh, we're going to see, uh, basically, I believe it's Adam recounting the whole story. He's actually been told these things. Now remember something about Adam. We're going to get that very shortly. He actually walked and talked with God. Amen? Now, I believe it was a Christophany. I believe that he was walking and talking with none other than Jesus. Uh, we, we know the scripture says no one can see God as in God the Father and live. So I don't believe that it was actually God the Father. But even if it was, there was a special time during that time because Adam had not yet sinned. So Adam could have conceivably still walked with God himself. Because he had not sinned, so he's not under the curse. He was not going to die from it. He was at that time actually holy, circumstantially, because sin had not entered the world. So let's put it this way. When you're without sin, you get to walk with God, and God speaks to you. And when God speaks to you, I'm pretty sure you're going to be listening to what God has to say. So here Adam, for the next, really the next basically three chapters is giving an account of things that no doubt, in my view, he got directly from God. God says, this is what I did. This is how I did it. This is what I intended. And so it is for that reason that we see the shift. Instead of just Elohim, now we see Jehovah Elohim. So he's Lord God. He's, he's master, in essence. In the New Testament, you see the word Adonai, it's the same connotation. It's master. That, that when you submit yourself to someone, they are your master. Amen? So this is an indicator of whoever's writing this is now saying, this God, I have a relationship with him, and he's my master. He's the Lord God. He's not just the creator. He's the one I actually worship. So I believe that what is being said here is you have already had the first worship service. And we're going to get extra details as we get the next couple of chapters. And so he says, look, these are the, this is the history of these things. And that's the, the beginning of chapter 2. And of course, Adam, because he's been told these things directly by God, he'd be very accurate in recounting those things. Something that we would expect. So we see a little bit of heavenly history in verses 4 and 5. And these are the generations or the beginnings, the Hebrew word toldath there. It, 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 it's the word from which we get Genesis itself, the actual word. So he, here now God is reminding us, look, I, I'm, I'm, I've done these things. But he's teaching, in essence, while he's doing that, he's saying, look, there's some things that I did. And when I did them, from that point on, they began to propagate. They began to do their own thing. Plants began to grow and animals began to breed and all of those things happened. 
but he put the creation together so it was already functioning in maturity. Notice what it says. This is the history, verse 4, of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, in the day that the Lord God, again, Jehovah, Elohim, made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth. That word field there is unique because it is a tilled field. In other words, before anyone actually took these things and used them for any purpose, before any herb of the field had grown, there, there was no domestication, in essence, of these plants. So it's speaking of a very specific time. So this was before Adam began to take dominion. So he's talking about things that are in the past. So it's not a contradiction. It's just simply some history. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And I believe rain, I believe those plants of the field, all are associated with the fall of mankind. That's coming up very shortly. But it hasn't happened yet. So he's just simply telling what happened uh, from before uh, he himself was actually created because he got that information from God. For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. Adam wasn't there yet. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So this is the history, in essence, of creation week in a very condensed form. Notice in verse 5, it's had grown, fully mature. He's talking about functioning maturity. He's saying, look, these plants were there. He wasn't talking about them needing to grow from seed into into full-grown plants. He wasn't talking about propagating things. He was simply saying that 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 appearance from, from a human perspective, if you had been dropped in the Garden of Eden you would have, like an evolutionist, gone, this had to have been here for a while because there were fully mature trees and fully mature bushes and fully living animals in pairs able to reproduce. So you would have gone, well, there's, there's a lot of time involved here if you started tearing apart everything in hindsight. And so God's reminding us, look, I created these things that way. And so when you see them, don't be surprised by that. Also, he he gives us a little secret to the original hydrologic cycle because it's a lot different than what we see today. And especially if you're looking at the East Coast, you're looking at Florida. You're you're seeing our current hydrologic cycle on steroids right now in that hurricane. You're you're seeing evaporation and condensation. You're you're seeing massive air movements. You're seeing global and continental um, swells. And we're seeing tides. We're seeing storm surge, all those kind of things. God actually put those things into place, but they came into place at the fall because they weren't necessary yet. There was no death. There was no destruction. So why would God create storms that could possibly blow wind so hard that it would kill things? He doesn't do that. That all comes after the fall. Some of the scientific summaries of those things are found in your Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, I can go through these quick if you just mark them down. Remember, you can get the PowerPoint slides online. I know this is not easy to see, uh, so that's going to get changed very soon. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 6, the wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. Did you know that we have circulatory wind systems? Generally, in the northern hemisphere, it goes towards the south, turns around, warms up over the equator, and goes back north again. little hydrology here from your Bible, written in the book of Job, Probably the events of the book of Job, 3800 B.C. B.C.E. if you prefer. So your Bible is actually quite accurate with regard to these things. The wind swirls, or, or it actually says swirls. You may have whirls in yours. Whirls or swirls, both are correct. About continually. Have you ever looked at the wind cycles? 
One of the reasons that the, the great age of exploration, when sailors left the European continent, specifically from Spain and or England, the reason they were able to travel all the way around the globe was, guess what? It travels circularly. It swirls. goes all the way around the earth. Prevailing winds continue to blow. And one of the things that always would happen they were afraid of was the doldrums. You get to a place where the wind stopped. But in a general sense, they were so steady that you could get in that wind pattern and you could go all the way across an entire ocean, uh, travel around to the south of any continent, and then ultimately uh, get around one of the two capes and you could end up right back where you started. And it comes again on a circuit. All the rivers run into the sea. Did you know that all the rivers run into the sea? All the rivers run into the sea at some point in time. They either run into the sea or they run into the ground and disappear and completely evaporate. But rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not yet full. You ever ever thought about that? You know how many billions of gallons of water flow from the Mississippi into the Gulf of Mexico? It's mind-boggling. You know how much water runs out of the Nile into the Mediterranean Sea? You ever thought about the Euphrates or the Tigris coming together and dumping into the Persian Gulf? Or the Yangtze when it dumps into the, the Bay of Hong Kong? They, all, all of these rivers dump into the sea constantly, and yet, somehow, mysteriously, it evaporates just enough so that the sea levels never rise. Little tiny fluctuations here and there but basically they stay right where they're at. We have some tides that are controlled by the moon. Your Bible says that God did all those things and he set them in place and they still keep doing that. It's crazy. Anybody see any of those pictures of the storm surge that completely in the Bahamas took all the water out of the great tarpon fishing flats in the Bahamas? Completely evacuated all of the water. Fish out there flopping around in the rocks and the coral and then it all came right back it didn't stay gone why because all the seas are interconnected to the place from which the rivers have come they return again it's amazing you just got the hydrologic cycle right there in the book of ecclesiastes it evaporates goes right back up on top of the mountains mountains flow the streams go into the rivers creeks go into the rivers rivers go into the ocean and it evaporates and does it all over again all day every day And nobody has to tell it, well, you know, boy, we need to evaporate some more water today. Isaiah 55, 10, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and and it does not return there, but it waters the earth to make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He's saying, look, uh, I even know exactly how much to put where. And in the Garden of Eden, it was an actual perfect balance. In other words, it just simply mist came up and watered everything. Which, by the way, is pretty much what we do now when we garden hydroponically. We put just enough water in there that it's self-sustaining to where there's evaporation. The mist comes up off the ground. We add a little bit at a time back in there for the total evaporation that gets out of the system. But the bottom line is, God told us those things. For he looks to the ends of the earth, Job 28 says, and he sees under the whole heavens established the weight of the wind. Did you know that wind actually does have a weight? And the portion of the waters by measure. For he made the law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. You know, forever we thought the thunderbolts actually came from the heavens. We now know they don't come from the heavens. They actually come from the ground. They go up. Your Bible tells you those things. All of those present cycles God puts in place. And he says, look, this is what I did. And originally he says, I, I watered the earth with a mist. 
By the way, it's exactly what Job 36 says. He draws up drops of water. What are very small drops of water? Mist. Which distill as rain from the mist. It's exactly what happens. Water vapor enters the earth's atmosphere. It's compressed. And then it falls as rain. The clouds drop down. Pour abundantly on man. And indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds or the thunder from his canopy? God just messes with us a little bit, tells us enough to say, mm, yeah, that was me. I love it. I love the fact that God does that. He reminds us, yeah, you, you want to see my handiwork? Go look at a rain cloud. Go check out what I did. You try and figure out a better system than that. That's one of the things, I, and while I'm not a, let me, let me say this carefully. I am not a climate change fanatic. I do believe that there are certain changes that we have caused in our atmosphere. There's almost zero doubt of that, that have had some effect on the climate. I do not believe it's as extreme as some say. But here's the crazy thing. We haven't run out of water yet. It hasn't stopped raining. Yes, we have some dry areas, and yes, we have some wetter areas. But in the end of the day, God balances it all out. And so when, when we look at the universe, we look at our planet, when we look at all these cycles, God did a marvelous job of creating it. So finally, we, we get to verses 6 and 7. And we'll wrap this up. What's man made of? What is man made of? And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Now remember the difference between soul and spirit. Soul is consciousness. Soul is thought. Soul is what we would call the the capability to have a personality. But spirit is something that's completely unique to mankind. That is the Ruach Elohim. That's the spirit of God that was breathed also into man. So he's talking about what he did with man itself. And it it just kind of skips a lot of the details. We're going to get some more of those as we move on. It's not telling of the creation of man, but it's simply the account of the formation, the energizing of his body. And so God says, I did it with the dust of the ground. Interestingly enough, you're not a whole bunch of elements. You're, you're a handful. Carbon, sulfur, phosphorus, nitrogen, oxygen, calcium, a handful of things. You're mostly a carbon-based life form. That's most of you. And a whole bunch of water. By the way, the Apostle Paul said the same thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. So the Apostle Paul knew exactly where we came from. About 22 pounds of chemicals that you can buy at any fertilizer store, and you can have you. <laughs> Cost you about 16 bucks. About seven quarts of water usually, something like that for an average person. We're just made out of dirt. But that fact wouldn't be obvious if you started picking up rocks, amen? You pick up rocks, the rocks are made out of a lot of other things. But in fact, God's telling us the truth. We're basically made out of the most common components of dirt. So when you die, you're going to go back to dirt, at least your body is, because that's where you came from. So if anybody ever says, you know, you're a dirt clod, you say, yes, I am. I'm related to dirt. Thank you very much. My Bible says so. Then he breathes into man the, the breath of life. It seems to be that he's making an anthropomorphism here or an anthropomorphic statement. And that means 
human characteristics attributed to God. In other words, you can almost see him as like he's got this, this blow-up doll of Adam, and he's like, pff, 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 pff. that's not what he's doing, just so you know. He, he's not blowing him up, so to speak. But what he is doing is taking what was lifeless and putting life into it. Adam was lifeless. Adam's about to become alive. And one of the very most interesting things about life is life cannot ever come from non-life. Ever. There is no such thing as abiogenesis, life from non-life. Anywhere in the universe, it doesn't happen. So in order to have life, you must take life from something that already has it and impart life to life. God says that's what he did. He breathed his life into Adam. He did that universally. He breathed life into all of animal life. In other words, he gave it life. He Life for life. But in Adam's case, he actually specifically breathed it into him. It's another uniqueness of the creation of man versus the creation of all other animal life. And so life can only come from life. There's no such thing as a self-existent being. Anything that has life today comes from something that already has life. Otherwise, you could just take a whole bunch of chemicals, like I just mentioned, phosphorus and sulfur and carbon, and put it all together and just let it sit there, and, and you mix it up enough, and it'll eventually turn into something alive. That's an impossibility. It's an impossibility thermically. It's an impossibility chemically. And the chief reason is one thing, and that's information. It has to have information to organize itself. And without that information being imparted to it, which is exactly what God says he does, then it won't be alive. And so God breathes that life uh, into Adam. And it's at this point that man becomes a conscious, living being. He's not blowing him up. He's giving him the the breath or the the wind of life, so to speak. He's not going to be a conscious soul. He's going to be able to think. He's going to be able to act. Uh, He's going to have a personality, all of those things. Uh, Because man is created in God's image, we can assume that at this point in time, God is is making, in essence, uh, Adam into someone that he can relate to, someone he can talk with, someone he can walk with someone that he can share thoughts with, someone that ultimately, for almost no other reason do we even understand this, but the fact that God is love, he created Adam to love. He created Adam to both be loved, desire love, and to give love. So when Adam was created, he was the most loving guy that ever walked the planet Earth. That's crazy. Because God created him that way. It's God's nature. It had to have been what was breathed into Adam. But he was a living soul. 1 Corinthians 15 gives that a New Testament context. And it says there in verse 45, And so it was written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. I love that. Because the last Adam is Jesus. And the one thing that we desperately needed, which Adam did not have perfectly, he, he, was, he had life breathed into him. He had the capacity not to sin. Jesus Christ erased the problem that Adam created by taking care of my debt of sin. Beautiful picture of God's original intent. But Adam was that first man. There was no pre-Adamite man. You know, some people say, well, you know, the Neanderthals and... 
and a Cro-Magnon man, and, you know, that's just, frankly, it's hogwash. Zero scientific evidence that those species were anything other than a man. God created us to have fellowship with him. That was his intent. Man's now on the scene, and we're going to get some additional details. And from here, we find out exactly how weak the flesh really is. Amen? Would you pray with me? We're going to have the worship team come back up at this time, and we'll pray. We're going to have some pastors available up front if you need prayer tonight. Um, looking forward to getting this uh, great wall of this queen down. Uh, be another week or so probably before that comes down and another couple of weeks for all the technology is done. So thank you for your patience. But, uh, I'm going to close in prayer and then we'll uh, do a final song and have some time where the pastors will be available for prayer. Father, we thank you tonight that when you breathe life into Adam, uh, you made us in your image. Lord, we've been created in the image of God. To love, Lord, with the capacity to have relationship. And Father, we thank you for that, that you didn't make a bunch of automatons. We're not robots. You didn't force us to love you back. You gave us free will. One of the greatest things about your love is that it's not demanded. It's not commanded. It's just an opportunity for us to reciprocate back to you who loves us. And so, Father, we recognize that's the, that's the real love uh, that you want to have with us. And God, we're grateful for the evidence that you've given us that we can look at our world and recognize that what you said about how you created it is true. And we can't know all things, but we can know enough things to say that it is reasonable for us to believe that you are creator. If people can believe in aliens, God... They can believe that somehow someone from space came and talked to a bunch of ancient Egyptians and that's how we got here. We simply trust you with what you've told us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then you created man and put him on this planet and breathed your own life and image into us. And so being created by you and for you as all things are, uh, Lord, help us to love you Help us to bless you. Help us, Lord, uh, in our weaknesses. Help us to, to walk with you all of our days. We ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.